Chapter 41 of The Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At two o'clock sharp, Dennis Shannon, as district attorney, began his opening address. He stated in a very simple, kindly way, for he had a most engaging manner, that the indictment, as here presented, charged Mr. Frank A. Cowperwood, who was sitting at the table inside the jury rail, first with larceny, second with embezzlement, third with larceny as bailee, and fourth with embezzlement of a certain sum of money, a specific sum to wit $60,000, on a check given him, drawn to his order, October 9, 1871, which was intended to reimburse him for a certain number of certificates of city loan, which he as agent or bailee of the check was supposed to have purchased for the city sinking fund on the order of the city treasurer, under some form of agreement, which had been in existence between them and which had been in force for some time. Said fund, being intended to take up such certificates as they might mature in the hands of holders and be presented for payment, for which purpose, however, the check in question had never been used. Now, gentlemen, said Mr. Shannon very quietly, before we go into this very simple question of whether Mr. Cowperwood did or did not, on the date in question, get from the city treasurer $60,000, for which he made no honest return, let me explain to you just what the people mean when they charge him first with larceny, second with embezzlement, third with larceny as bailee, and fourth, with embezzlement on a check. Now, as you see, there are four counts here, as we lawyers term them, and the reason there are four counts is as follows. A man may be guilty of larceny and embezzlement at the same time, or larceny or embezzlement separately, and without being guilty of the other, and the district attorney representing the people might be uncertain not that he was not guilty of both, but that it might not be possible to present the evidence under one count so as to ensure his adequate punishment for a crime which in a way involved both. In such cases, gentlemen, it is customary to indict a man under separate counts, as has been done in this case. Now the four counts in this case, in a way, overlap and confirm each other, and it will be your duty after we have explained their nature and character, and presented the evidence to say whether the defendant is guilty on one count or the other, or on two or three of the counts, or on all four, just as you see fit and proper, or to put it in a better way, as the evidence warrants. Larceny, as you may or may not know, is the act of taking away the goods or chattels of another without his knowledge or consent, and embezzlement is the fraudulent appropriation to one's own use of what is entrusted to one's care and management, especially money. Larceny as bailee, on the other hand, is simply a more definite form of larceny, where one fixes the act of carrying away the goods of another without his knowledge or consent on the person to whom the goods were delivered in trust, that is, the agent or bailee. Embezzlement on a check, which constitutes the fourth charge, 
is simply a more defining form, affixing charge number two in an exact way and signifies appropriating the money on a check given for a certain definite purpose. All of these charges, as you can see, gentlemen, are in a way synonymous. They overlap and overlay each other. The people, through their representative, the district attorney, contend that Mr. Cowperwood, the defendant here, is guilty of all four charges. So now, gentlemen, we will proceed to the history of this crime, which proves to me, as an individual, that this defendant has one of the most subtle and dangerous minds of the criminal financier type, and we hope by witnesses to prove that to you also. Shannon, because the rules of evidence and court procedure here admitted for no interruption of the prosecution in presenting a case, then went on to describe from his own point of view how Cowperwood had first met Stenner, how he had wormed himself into his confidence, how little financial knowledge Stenner had, and so forth, coming down finally to the day the check for $60,000 was given Cowperwood, how Stenner, as treasurer, claimed that he knew nothing of its delivery, which constituted the base of the charge of larceny, how Cowperwood, having it, misappropriated the certificates supposed to have been purchased for the sinking fund, if they were purchased at all, all of which, Shannon said, constituted the crimes with which the defendant was charged, and of which he was unquestionably guilty. We have direct and positive evidence on all that we have thus far contended, gentlemen. Mr. Shannon concluded violently, This is not a matter of hearsay or theory, but of fact. You will be shown by direct testimony, which cannot be shaken, just how it was done. If, after you have heard all this, you still think this man is innocent, that he did not commit the crimes with which he is charged, it is your business to acquit him. On the other hand, if you think the witnesses whom we shall put on the stand are telling the truth, then it is your business to convict him, to find a verdict for the people against the defendant. I thank you for your attention. The jurors stirred comfortably and took positions of ease in which they thought they were to rest for the time. But their idle comfort was of short duration, for Shannon now called out the name of George W. Stenner, who came hurrying forward, very pale, very flaccid, very tired-looking. His eyes, as he took the seat in the witness chair, laying his hand on the Bible and swearing to tell the truth, roved in a restless, nervous manner. His voice was a little weak as he started to give his testimony. He told first how he had met Cowperwood in the early months of 1866. He could not remember the exact day. It was during his first term as city treasurer. He had been elected to the office in the fall of 1864. He had been troubled about the condition of city loan, which was below par, and which could not be sold by the city legally at anything but par. Cowperwood had been recommended to him by someone, Mr. Strobik, he believed, though he couldn't be sure. It was the custom of city treasurers to employ brokers or a broker in a crisis of this kind, and he was merely following what had been the custom. He went on to describe, under steady promptings and questions from the incisive mind of Shannon, just what the nature of this first conversation was. 
he remembered it fairly well. How Mr. Cowperwood had said he thought he could do what was wanted, how he had gone away and drawn up a plan, or thought out one, and how he had returned and laid it before Stenner. Under Shannon's skillful guidance, Stenner elucidated just what the scheme was, which wasn't exactly so flattering to the honesty of men in general as it was a testimonial to their subtlety and skill. After much discussion of Stenner and Cowperwood's relations, the story finally got down to the preceding October, when by reason of companionship, long business understanding, mutually prosperous relationship, etc., the place had been reached where, it was explained, Cowperwood was not only handling several millions of city loan annually, buying and selling for the city, and trading in it generally, but in the bargain had secured one $500,000 worth of city money at an exceedingly low rate of interest, which was being invested for himself and Stenner in profitable streetcar ventures of one kind or another. Stenner was not anxious to be altogether clear on this point, but Shannon, seeing that he was later to prosecute Stenner himself for this very crime of embezzlement, and that Steger would soon follow in cross-examination, was not willing to let him be hazy. Shannon wanted to fix Cowperwood in the minds of the jury as a clever, tricky person. And by degrees, he certainly managed to indicate a very subtle-minded man. Occasionally, as one sharp point after another of Cowperwood's skill was brought out and made moderately clear, one juror or another turned to look at Cowperwood. And he noting this, and in order to impress them all as favorably as possible, merely gazed Stennerward with a steady air of intelligence and comprehension. The examination now came down to the matter of the particular check for $60,000 which Albert Stiers had handed Cowperwood on the afternoon late of October 9, 1871. Shannon showed Stenner the check itself. Had he ever seen it? Yes. Where? In the office of District Attorney Petty on October 20th, or thereabouts last. Was that the first time he had seen it? Yes. Had he ever heard about it before then? Yes. When? On October 10th, last. Would he kindly tell the jury in his own way just how and under what circumstances he first heard of it? Stenner twisted uncomfortably in his chair. It was a hard thing to do. It was not a pleasant commentary on his own character and degree of moral stamina, to say the least. However, he cleared his throat again and began a description of that small but bitter section of his life's drama in which Cowperwood, finding himself in a tight place and about to fail, had come to him at his office and demanded that he loan him $300,000 more in one lump sum. There was considerable bickering just at this point between Steger and Shannon, for the former was very anxious to make it appear that Stenner was lying out of the whole cloth about this. Stenner got in his objection at this point and created a considerable diversion from the main theme, because Stenner kept saying he thought or he believed. Object, shouted Steger repeatedly. I move that that be stricken from the record as incompetent 
irrelevant and immaterial. The witness is not allowed to say what he thinks, and the prosecution knows it very well. Your Honor, insisted Shannon, I am doing the best I can to have the witness tell a plain, straightforward story, and I think that it is obvious that he is doing so. Object, reiterated Steger vociferously. Your Honor, I insist that the district attorney has no right to prejudice the minds of the jury by flattering estimates of the sincerity of the witness. What he thinks of the witness and his sincerity is of no importance to the case. I must ask that Your Honor caution him plainly in this matter. Objection sustained, declared Judge Paterson. The prosecution will please be more explicit. And Shannon went on with his case. Stenner's testimony in one respect was most important, for it made plain what Cowperwood did not want brought out, namely that he and Stenner had had a dispute before this, that Stenner had distinctly told Cowperwood that he would not loan him any more money, that Cowperwood had told Stenner on the day before he secured this check, and again on that very day, that he was in a very desperate situation financially, and that if he were not assisted to the extent of $300,000, he would fail, and that then both he and Stenner would be ruined. On the morning of this day, according to Stenner, he had sent Cowperwood a letter ordering him to cease purchasing city loan certificates for the sinking fund. It was after their conversation on the same afternoon that Cowperwood surreptitiously secured the check for $60,000 from Albert Steers without his, Stenner's knowledge, and it was subsequent to this latter again that Stenner, sending Albert to demand the return of the check, was refused, though the next day at five o'clock in the afternoon Cowperwood made an assignment, and the certificates for which the check had been purloined were not in the sinking fund as they should have been. This was dark testimony for Cowperwood. If anyone imagines that this was all done without many vehement objections and exceptions made and taken by Steger, and subsequently, when he was cross-examining Stenner by Shannon, he errs greatly. At times, the chamber was corsicating with these two gentlemen's bitter wrangles, and his honor was compelled to hammer his desk with his gavel and threaten both with contempt of court in order to bring them to a sense of order. Indeed, while Paterson was highly incensed, the jury was amused and interested. You gentlemen will have to stop this, or I tell you now that you will both be heavily fined. This is a court of law, not a barroom, Mr. Steger. I expect you to apologize to me and your colleague at once. Mr. Shannon, I must ask that you use less aggressive methods. Your manner is offensive to me. It is not becoming to a court of law. I will not caution either of you again. Both lawyers apologized, as lawyers do on such occasions, but it really made little difference. Their individual attitudes and moods continued about as before. "'What did he say to you?' asked Shannon of Stenner, after one of these troublesome interruptions on that occasion, October ninth, when he came to you and demanded the loan of an additional $300,000. Give his words as near as you can remember, exactly if possible.' "'Object,' interposed Steger vigorously. 
His exact words are not recorded anywhere except in Mr. Stenner's memory, and his memory of them cannot be admitted in this case. The witness has testified to the general facts. Judge Peterson smiled grimly. Objection overruled, he returned. Exception, shouted Steger. He said, as near as I can remember, replied Stenner, drumming on the arms of the witness chair in a nervous way, that if I didn't give him $300,000, he was going to fail, and I would be poor and go to the penitentiary. Object, shouted Steger, leaping to his feet. Your Honor, I object to the whole manner in which this examination is being conducted by the prosecution. The evidence which the district attorney is here trying to extract from the uncertain memory of the witness is in defiance of all law and precedent, and has no definite bearing on the facts of the case, and could not disprove or substantiate whether Mr. Cowperwood thought or did not think that he was going to fail. Mr. Stenner might give one version of this conversation or any conversation that took place at this time, and Mr. Cowperwood another. As a matter of fact, their versions are different. I see no point in Mr. Shannon's line of inquiry, unless it is to prejudice the jury's minds towards accepting certain allegations which the prosecution is pleased to make and which it cannot possibly substantiate. I think you ought to caution the witness to testify only in regard to things that he recalls exactly, not to what he thinks he remembers. And for my part, I think that all that has been testified to in the last five minutes might be well stricken out. Objection overruled, replied Judge Paterson, rather indifferently, and Steger, who had been talking merely to overcome the weight of Stenner's testimony in the minds of the jury, sat down. Shannon once more approached Stenner. Now, as near as you can remember, Mr. Stenner, I wish you would tell the jury what else it was that Mr. Cowperwood said on that occasion. He certainly didn't stop with the remark that you would be ruined and go to the penitentiary. Wasn't there other language that was employed on that occasion? He said, as far as I can remember, replied Stenner, that there were a lot of political schemers who were trying to frighten me, that if I didn't give him $300,000, we would both be ruined, and that I might well be tried for stealing a sheep as a lamb. Ha! yelled Shannon. He said that, did he? Yes, sir, he did, said Stenner. How did he say it exactly? What were his exact words? Shannon demanded, emphatically, pointing a forceful forefinger at Stenner in order to key him up to a clear memory of what had transpired. "'Well, as near as I can remember, he said just that,' replied Stenner vaguely. "'You might as well be tried for stealing a sheep as a lamb.' "'Exactly,' exclaimed Shannon, whirling around past the jury to look at Cowperwood. "'I thought so.' "'Pure pyrotechnics, Your Honor,' said Steger, rising to his feet on the instant. "'All intended to prejudice the minds of the jury, acting. "'I wish you would caution the counsel for the prosecution,' to confine himself to the evidence in hand and not act for the benefit of his case. The spectators smiled, and Judge Paterson, noting it, frowned severely. "'Do you make that as an objection, Mr. Steger?' he asked. "'I certainly do, Your Honor,' insisted Steger, resourcefully. Objection overruled. 
Neither counsel for the prosecution nor the defense is limited to a peculiar routine of expression. Steger himself was ready to smile, but he did not dare to. Cowperwood, fearing the force of such testimony and regretting it, still looked at Stenner pityingly. The feebleness of the man, the weakness of the man, the past to which his cowardice had brought them both. When Shannon was through bringing out this unsatisfactory data, Steger took Stenner in hand, but he could not make as much out of him as he hoped. In so far as this particular situation was concerned, Stenner was telling the exact truth, and it was hard to weaken the effect of the exact truth by any subtlety of interpretation, though it can sometimes be done. With painstaking care, Steger went over all the ground of Stenner's long relationship with Cowperwood, and tried to make it appear that Cowperwood was invariably the disinterested agent, not the ringleader, in a subtle, really criminal adventure. It was hard to do, but he made a fine impression. Still the jury listened with skeptical minds. It might not be fair to punish Cowperwood for seizing with avidity upon a splendid chance to get rich quick, they thought but it certainly was not worthwhile to throw a veil of innocence over such palpable human cupidity. Finally, both lawyers were through with Stenner for the time being, anyhow, and then Albert Stiers was called to the stand. He was the same thin, pleasant, alert, rather agreeable soul that he had been in the heyday of his clerkly prosperity, a little paler now, but not otherwise changed. His small property had been saved for him by Cowperwood, who had advised Steger to inform the Municipal Reform Association that Stiers's bondsmen were attempting to sequester it for their own benefit, when actually it should go to the city if there were any real claim against him, which there was not. That watchful organization had issued one of its numerous reports covering this point, and Albert had had the pleasure of seeing Strobik and the others withdrawn haste. Naturally, he was grateful to Cowperwood, even though once he had been compelled to cry in vain in his presence. He was anxious now to do anything he could to help the banker, but his naturally truthful disposition prevented him from telling anything except the plain facts, which were partly beneficial and partly not. Stiers testified that he recalled Cowperwood's saying, that he had purchased the certificates, that he was entitled to the money, that Stenner was unduly frightened, and that no harm would come to him, Albert. He identified certain memoranda in the city treasurer's books, which were produced, as being accurate, and other in Cowperwood's books, which were also produced, as being corroborative. His testimony has to Stenner's astonishment on discovering that his chief clerk had given Cowperwood a check was against the latter, but Cowperwood hoped to overcome the effect of this by his own testimony later. Up to now, both Steger and Cowperwood felt that they were doing fairly well, and that they need not be surprised if they won their case. End of chapter 41